start, don't start, sorry. Because now I, I, I just had this it was in my head. So Sylvia, please announce. There's a workshop this Sunday from 9 to 4 here. It's called From Despair to Transformation, Using Climate Change to Become More Mindful, Resilient, and Inspired. James Barras and Robert Doppelt. It says, does the gloom and doom of climate change leave you wondering what you can do when you feel helpless, hopeless, and anxiety? So uh, Bob Doppelt is a longtime Dharma student who is working with the Obama administration on climate change. And James Barras is my good friend and yours that we know for many years, who's a wonderful Dharma teacher. And they'll be here this Sunday. Okay. That's already started? Well, that's on it. That's okay. Take a breath in and out. You know, just before we um, ended our sitting, I introduced that um, practice that Thich Nhat Hanh taught about breathing in, I calm my body, breathing out, I smile. And I mentioned just at the beginning of the time that we came together that I had heard that Thich Nhat Hanh is near the end of his life and that he's become quite frail. The, I heard the news earlier this week, and I've been looking online and waiting to hear news. I have not heard anything since that, except just now, that he's frail. I did hear in the email that I got that uh, on the night before I got that email, he had uh, wanted to give a talk to the community and he'd given a 20-minute talk on the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And uh, I, I took that quite seriously about, because it sounds like, wow, in 20 minutes. But I think the essence of the Dharma, you really could say in 20 minutes, probably less. And he best of all. I thought I would tell you, uh, just in honor of him, just a few times I saw him and met him. Uh, the first time I saw him was early on when he was first in this country. It, could, it must have been in the 1970s. Not sure. But he was talking about being a monk in Vietnam and um, that the monks were not on one side or another side. They were on the side of peace and that uh, because of the fighting that was happening, uh, he said, many of my, um, my brothers, monks, were killed in the crossfire. And he said, I often had to bury a member of my community. And he said, that was very hard practice to be able to do that. And I can't remember exactly what he said at the time, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't try because I couldn't, 
I couldn't duplicate his tone of voice that was so gentle. And I understood that what I took to, what I thought I understood from what he said was several depths of hard to do it, that it was hard to do it, not physically hard, but hard because if it's someone that you love who's been killed, then you feel it, it's a really, it's a really great trauma to the mind and loss. But, and I think on top of it was the, the sense I had, either from how he said it or what he said, that the hardest thing was not to let anger arise in him and to do it and maintain his peace. I think about peace advocacy as being what I associate with Thich Nhat Hanh. When you sat, and I said, sit for a minute and we'll just do that particular practice of breathing in, I calm my body, breathing out, I smile. What did you think of it? It's good, isn't it? It's good. It's like breathing in, I calm, it's not like, it is. Breathing in, I calm my body. I, I love those kinds of uh, 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 injunctions to yourself because that means I could. You know, I'm doing it. Breathing in, I calm my body. Okay. It's like you give your body an instruction and it calms itself. Breathing out, I smile. I heard him in uh, person once teaching that breathing out, I smile. And somebody said, you know, I don't feel that that's honest. That's not authentic. What if I'm not happy? What if I'm displeased? Why should I smile? And he was so cool about it. He said, Smiling does not mean you're pleased. It just means you're smiling. And uh, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's so wise, you know. He said it might be that, first of all, when you smile, your face relaxes a little bit. Your muscles relax. And it might connect you with a time that you were genuinely smiling because you felt happy. It might remind you in some uh, uh, confirming way that peace is a possibility, that you don't feel so happy now, but you could at some time, that, that it's a familiar feeling for you. It could reconnect you to that. Don't make a problem out of things. I said earlier, as, before we started to sit, that I, uh, when I heard the news about Thich Nhat Hanh being frail and at the end of his time maybe, that uh, I, looked, uh, I looked online to see what there was of his teaching that I could look at. And there was a teaching, probably recent, but not, not in this week, of um, him teaching about the, the uh, nourishing the wholesome. I didn't, I didn't hear the name of it, but it would have been nourishing the wholesome, I think, uh, wise effort. Um, and actually, he was giving the talk to uh, uh, a group of Spanish-speaking people, so he had a, a, a native speaker sitting next to him. So the YouTube, if you go and look for it, is very sweet because you hear it twice, because you hear him saying it in English, and then you hear it right after that in beautiful Spanish. And it's, uh, you know, 
it just sounds nice. It sounds like an echo of it, like, yes, indeed, you know. Um, and he talked about everybody having the seeds of opposites in them, that we have seeds of uh, lust and seeds of generosity and seeds of anger and seeds of love and seeds of uh, boredom and uh, sleepiness and se seeds of alertness and interest. And uh, he said, what matters is what seeds you water. Don't worry about the other ones. And if anger arises in a relationship, he said, between you and a partner, you might want to, and the other person gets angry, you might want to think about, how have I watered the seeds of anger in that person? I thought, whoa, that's so interesting that really he talked about things happening, not how I could get it about how have I watered the seeds of anger in me, but how have I watered the seeds of anger in this other person? Now that's really a seriously important question that nothing happens in a vacuum, that everything happens in relationship. I just stopped and I thought about it for a while. He said it's all about love. And, uh, I, well, this is probably an outrageous thing to say, but I, 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 I wanted to keep myself in a reverent mood, and it pops into my mind. I was visiting some people recently. Over the weekend, I stayed in somebody's house. I had a cartoon up on their bulletin board. This is so ridiculous, but I passed it all weekend, and I laughed every time I went by. It was a cartoon of a great big Buddha statue, you know, one of those really big... Buddha sitting, solemn, you know, it's a stone Buddha sitting, that's the, that's the drawing. And uh, it's got a thought bubble over it. Uh, you know, a thought bubble is a bubble with little bubbles coming down, like this Buddha is thinking, it's tacked on the refrigerator. And the Buddha is thinking, I hate my thighs. <laughs> And every time I went by, I just thought it was the funniest thing in the world. I mean, isn't that the funniest thing in the world? I mean, and I kept going back and saying, why is this funny? You know, is it, and I think it's funny. Well, you tell me, I think it's funny. Because when you think about all the millions of things, billions of things that you could think in a life, that's about the least wise of all the thoughts. You know, when you think about what's a wise thought, what's a wholesome thought. Uh, <laughs> anyway, even when I tell you, I laugh about it a little bit. It's completely irreverent, but I, I, it, I, it reminded me. I don't, you know, I, I thought of Nora Ephron, who wrote a whole book called "I Hate My Neck." <laughs> but uh, I, what I took away from it, I thought, how I laughed each time I went by. I thought, I'm going to tell that story on Wednesday, but what am I going to tell about it? There was, I, first of all, first of all, I have two things I was going to tell about it. One is the triviality of it, you know, and how much time does my mind spend dealing with trivia and nonsense and when it could not be. It could be doing all kinds of other things. I was reading Angie Arian this morning. Angelus Arian was a wonderful teacher who uh, died in this last year. Actually, young, young. Um, and uh, she, was not, she wasn't a teacher in the Buddhist tradition. 
a teacher in the shamanic tradition. She was an anthropologist. Uh, but she, was taught, she wrote a book called um, Living in Gratitude. And it's a, the whole book about why keeping your mind in a grateful way, in a grateful mood, uh, by whatever way you could, by remembering what, at least that you're alive, and what else, uh, to find things to pick up your mind. So because gratitude is the antidote to uh, negativity in the mind. It's the antidote to greed. It's the antidote to uh, clinging. It's the antidote to any kind of negativity in the mind. I was thinking about... Uh, what lines are most important to me in all the Dharma teaching? If I had to say uh, in one sentence, why am I practicing? The first line of an important metta chant is, may I be free of enmity and danger. I love that line. When I first heard it, I thought, as a long time ago, you know, a couple of decades ago, may I be free of enmity and danger. I heard it probably at the same time that I heard the story about metta practice that uh, it is said that the Buddha taught metta practice to monks that he was about to send out, monks, I've heard my friends say monks and nuns. Over the years we've made We've made politically correct additions to Dharma. Anyway, that the Buddha said to monks as he sent them out to live by themselves in hermitages in the forest or to be by themselves in the jungle, and he taught them metta practice so that they wouldn't be afraid of things that were in the jungle. They were, they, in, the, in those days, there were fears of demons and ghosts and wild animals. And uh, part of the folklore around the Metta Sutta, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace, is, uh, which has the refrain, may all beings uh, be, uh, may all beings uh, live in ease, may all beings be happy, depending on how you want to translate it. Whatever living beings there may be, and he taught it to the monks as a, uh, uh, I learned, as an amulet against being attacked. That if you did that practice, that nothing would attack you. And I think to myself that if you do a practice of uh, being sure that there is nothing but goodwill in you, so that you can wish well to all beings, then you actually are safe from being attacked. But you're not safe from being attacked by scorpions or jungle animals or mountain lions or uh, anything on the outside you're safe from your your benevolent heart is safe from anxiety if i if i have no enemies in my mind i don't have to i'm not living in fear we could die we could get attacked we could die something could happen Something will happen, and we will die. But to die with a good heart, not wishing anything but wishing well. I think when I was here the last time, I'm not sure. I think I talked a lot about my son's mother-in-law who was dying. 
and she passed. She died very quietly, without actually very much discomfort at all, without morphine, without... She got frailer and frailer until one afternoon she just took a breath and left. That was really... I don't know. You know, I haven't met a lot of people who did it just like that. But I thought to myself, maybe it's because she had no enmity about anything. I asked her one time, I think I told you that, were you always like this or did you learn how to do it? And she said, no, I was always like this. So, so much for practice. <laughs> but I think I, I think I could get better, you know. <laughs> Anybody here thinks they have no enmity? I think actually we could do a little practice about that. I was thinking about that for today. About but there are a few more things I want to say about Thich Nhat Hanh, maybe. I think that he emanated peace. He lived in a peaceful way. He taught living together peacefully. I'm sure I've told you about the apple juice story that he used to tell. Do you know the apple juice story? When he had first, when I guess when Plum Village was first established, when people had just come out from Vietnam, he had there were refugee children living in the village with him in France, and uh, he had a small boy living with him in his hut for a while who called him as an, as an affectionate name. So the story is that the child came in from playing and said, Uncle, I'm very thirsty. He said, so I poured him some apple juice. And the apple juice was the unfiltered kind. So when I poured it for him, the, the little boy said, no, that doesn't look good to me. That's all muddy looking. I'm not drinking that apple juice. And went out to play. And then, so the apple juice was on the table. And the boy came back after a while, and you know how it is with unfiltered apple juice, it, it settles down. And then it looked very clear. He said, oh, that looks good, and he drank the apple juice. Then he said, uncle, when you sit and meditate, is your mind like apple juice, and is that what happens? So I love that. When you sit, is your mind like apple juice, and then it settles down? If you leave it alone, it settles down. Wasn't Thich Nhat Hanh the uh, Vietnamese representative to the Paris Peace Talks? No. 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 <laughs> I guess. I, <laughs> I didn't know it one way or the other, but I guess not. Yeah. You know, let's spend 20 minutes and see if we can do the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. I have 29 minutes. <laughs> I thought about it, though. This is uh, actually I thought about it. I thought about it since I heard about it, and this is to do it all seriously. I think it's easier than shorter, actually, than longer. I thought, have I changed in what I was teaching? In have I changed in the last twenty-five years of teaching? Do I still say the same, the four noble truths the same way? Not quite. Normally, I, I, I would have said, and most textbooks say, uh, the first of the truths is life is suffering, dukkha. Uh, uh, and inherent in that uh, is usually the explanation that it's suffering because we don't get what we want, or we do get what we want, but things change, and 
So there's nothing that you can actually sustain satisfaction about. So some people translate it as life is unsatisfactory because it, it doesn't last. I, I, that doesn't work for me as well. I decided the other day that I would say more, life is startling. It's startling. You know, things keep happening to you, thick and fast. You know, that, I think that's what it is. Just when, you know, not just when, just when you think you're happy. When I was a child, my grandmother, who was invalid and spent a lot of time in bed, used to listen to soap operas. And when, I, when I'd sit but I'd listen to the soap operas with her, 15 minutes, Helen Trent, 15 minutes, Our Gal Sunday, 15 minutes, One Man's Family. If people have, <laughs> all the people who nodded their head are more than 60 years old, <laughs> or somewhere up around there. And they all had tie lines in them that said things like, I hate him so much, I would never go with him the whole rest of my life. And then if I wasn't with my grandmother for some months and I came back, they were married or, you know, that something that happened. Or I'm so happy, nothing can annoy my happiness. And then you stay for, after the commercial, ring, ring, it's a telephone. They've just been in a car accident, they're in a coma. The, the stuff happens and people mock soap operas because they say it's ridiculous. One minute this calamity, next minute the other calamity. But the thing is, I think that that's life is like a soap opera. If it's not all calamitous in everybody's family every day, somebody's family is having a calamity down the street. Or, uh, you know, sometimes when I'm in New York, I look at an, apart an apartment building, and you think, wow, 400 families live here. Today, somebody got a disease, somebody else got a diagnosis, somebody else this, somebody else that, somebody's doing this, somebody's doing that. Uh, you know, in an air I was once in an airplane flying across the Atlantic, coming back from Europe, and somebody died in the airplane. And uh, did that ever happen to any? Somebody died, and I, I was I was watching the map as we were flying. You know, you know, you can watch the map. I always watch the map the whole time because it's very consoling to me. You see that you're making progress. So I don't, I don't so much like the movies, but I read a book and I watch the map. And I'm watching the map and a plane is going along. That little plane icon is going along. And then the plane icon turns around and it's going back. And I think something is not right. And then by and by the captain gets on and says that uh, they have a medical emergency and uh, they're needing to go back and land in Halifax or something. And then by and by, I'm watching the icon, it turns around and it goes forward again. And actually, they had asked for some physicians if they were in the plane to come up. And so my husband was gone for a long period of time and the person had died on the plane. Meanwhile, several hours went by and, uh, well, at least an hour went by with the back and the forth and going forward again. Meantime, they're serving meals, playing movies, people are taking naps, people are working on computers. I think to myself, this is, especially because my husband was gone, I knew this whole thing was going on. Either somebody had died or was dying. I thought to myself, there's this whole drama going, and everybody else is eating and looking and typing and reading. And then I thought to myself, well, of course they are. You know, there's 400 people on this plane. It's like a, it's like a city, and people die. People get born on planes. 
had a friend who had a grandchild born on a flight between Los Angeles and San Francisco. That the, the person, uh, this was a first child, it's amazing. First child, they take off, not in labor, take off, and the child gets born before San Francisco. They, 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 the, no, seriously, a, 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 a paramedic came and met the plane to take them to the hospital to see it was all managed or but the baby was born, you know. That, uh, <laughs> Uh, it doesn't happen much, but everything happens all the time. People are borning and dying and dying and borning. And to be able to somehow have an equanimity in the middle of it. I don't remember why I started to tell you that, but what I wanted to get to... What was I going to tell you about? I don't startling. Even, startling. Life is startling. You don't know what's going to... First noble truth, life is startling. And we are adjusting to it all the time. The line I'm having, the line from a friend of mine who wrote to me from a nursing home. She was 95 and she just moved into an assisted living. My friend was an artist and she wanted to live on her own as long as she could. She moved into an assisted living because she had peripheral neuropathy badly enough to for, need to live where people were watching her. And she said, I wish you'd come and teach Dharma here because... Uh, a lot of the people here are like me, and they're having trouble adjusting to their new circumstances. And I think to myself, we're all having trouble adjusting to our new circumstances. I mean, not in a bad way. I went, and I talked to the group, and they were great. And I like talking to elderly people. It's the same dharma with elderly people. Louder. You know, but, <laughs> but, uh, uh, but it's the same dharma, you know. It's, uh, and they find themselves old all of a sudden. How many people do you think they got old all of a sudden? All of a sudden, who noticed? And they accidentally got old. <laughs> but uh, life is startling. And the cause of suffering, the second noble truth is the cause of suffering, often they write, is craving. Craving is a funny word. I think it's a Victorian translation. Sometimes it's rendered as clinging. Uh, uh, that's not as clinging sounds like greed. And when we don't like something, we're really not clinging to the thing. We're clinging to our aversion to the thing. I think it makes more sense to say uh, the second noble truth as the cause of suffering is imperative in the mind. Imperative is a good word. Imperative that things should be otherwise. That's it. It's imperative. It's both I have to have this and I can't stand that. They're both imperatives, different kind of imperatives. Whatever it is, I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a noxious situation. I, I, uh, it's the opposite of this is what's happening. I'm grateful for the mind that recognizes it, To I can't stand it. I'm trying to avoid saying the word hate because actually I try in my life never to say, uh, to say hate. It's just a, maybe it's an affectation, but I told you that because of the cartoon. But uh, I just, it's such a, it's such a terrible word, really, uh, because it has so much pain in it. But it's the same as imperative. <laughs> I have imperative in my mind, but imperative, the word itself is not bad. I could have an imperative that we work for world peace. But no, actually, I have a desire that we work for world peace uh, and a hope that we'll work for well, world peace because those don't, those don't trouble my mind. 
imperative. So I think the second noble truth is uh, suffering is imperative in the mind that things must be different now. Doesn't mean that I can't have a desire or a hope that there'll be world peace or a hope that the world will figure out how to do, how to deal with climate change and all the other things that are facing it. And it actually holds out an expectation if I say I'm hoping for world peace, I'm hoping for the uh, people to work out how to, the climate change business, uh, the climate change dilemma. I'm hoping means it could be different. I remember telling you several times that I was so impressed with Gil Fransdahl saying the definition of equanimity is the ability to say, hmm, I guess this is what's happening now, followed by the sentence, I wonder what's going to happen next. That leaves a whole world of possibility, you know. There's climate change. There's terrible wars going on in the world. I wonder what's going to happen next, and I wonder what I can do to make a difference about it. It just keeps the mind from getting, from getting angry at the situation, even. When may I be free of enmity means I really want to have enmity out of my mind because it's, un it's unpleasant. That's why I told you that cartoon. And the third noble truth is peace is possible. You know, I think because we use peace as a lack of war, I even would change that a little bit to um, serenity is possible. Serenity is, a, is, is uh, I, I hope that doesn't sound too inert, but serenity more than peace. Peace is like a concept, I think. Serenity is a feeling. Um, it's a feeling, I think, I think, you think of it, I like it better than tranquility, uh, which really sounds more placid. Serenity means I'm all right. You know, I, I was just thinking the serenity prayer, but I always get it backwards. Grant me the serenity, the serenity to accept, the courage to accept the things I cannot change, the wisdom to change the things I no. Oh wait a minute. So let me get it right now. Okay. So that really is what the Buddha taught, is it not? I it is. I think exactly. It's what everybody teaches. It's a fundamental wisdom teaching because what's the choice? When you say, grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change, you have two choices. You can either have serenity or you can have uproar about it, mm -hmm. but they're not going to change it. Mm -hmm. that, that, uh, that lack of serenity is creating uh, the second dagger. The Buddha, the, Buddha said, the Buddha's simile of the two daggers is he said sometimes he gets, he gets stabbed by a dagger. <laughs> if you pull out the dagger and then stab yourself again with it, you have two daggers. If something happens and it isn't what you wanted, and then you get angry about it, you have stabbed yourself with the second dagger, dagger. To be able to say, this is happening, I'm really not pleased about this. I wish it were otherwise, what can I do? Is to keep your mind full of the, of, of the energy that it needs to move forward. There's a, there's a, um, a very close a liaison in um, Nyanapanaka 
Nyanapanika Tara, in a, a very wonderful treatise called The Heart of Buddhist Meditation, talks about uh, bare attention, mindfulness, paying attention. And he makes a very important case that mindfulness, attentiveness, moment to moment, he says, leads to clear comprehension of purpose. What should I do? I think it includes, in fact, not only clear comprehension of purpose, what should I do, but includes also the energy to do it, whatever it is, write to your Congress people, go and advocate, collect for this cause, have people come and learn how to swim, whatever it is that you have a purpose for, it gives you the, the ability to do that. Say, what do I need to do to make this happen? So I think I like that better. Serenity is a possibility. Ease is a possibility. Um, I also, well, I, I, guess it, I, I guess we can't. It's so embedded in Western consciousness that the third noble truth is peace is possible. But maybe, maybe that it's close to serenity. It's the ability to wish well uniformly. That's why I like that line, may I be free of enmity. If, I, for, if for me to be free of enmity, what it would require is such consolidated wisdom that I actually could remember all the time that everyone is doing the best they can. Not only that, everybody, well, not even the best, because that makes, everybody is doing the only thing that they can at that moment. That things are the way they are. That, that really, it, it, to be able to have imperative that things need to be different right now. And they can't be, because they're the way they are right now. If they could have been another way, they would have been another way. You know, that for whatever reason. I, I really think that's the meaning of karma. And I don't think that karma is personal. Things happen because other things happen. We talked a lot in the last few weeks about the earthquake. Anybody felt the earthquake? Oh, yeah. yeah. And we talked about, you know, if an earthquake happens and you're in a certain place, bricks fall on you. And if you're in another place, bricks don't fall on you. It has nothing to do with whether you're a good person or not a good person. It has to do with where the bricks are loose and where they, when, they, when the earthquake happens. I don't take karma personally. I think when I'm old, if I have no friends, it'll be because I wasn't nice to people. <laughs> and that will be the karmic fruit of my not being nice. <laughs> so it will be personal. <laughs> and if I'm not, <laughs> but if I am, then the, probably the just desserts, you know, we say someone's got their just desserts. Probably the just desserts is if you're nice, you have a lot of friends. And if you're not, you don't. But What's the difference between shit happens and karma? I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure, Lynn, that there's so much of a difference. But uh, no, no, I would make it, I would make it, I would make it bigger. Because sometimes wonderful things happen. Right. And karma. I have a friend... This is my quintessential karma story. I knew a woman, we were friends, I haven't seen her in a long time, but the best story about her was she finished college and her roommate, uh, who was French, invited her to spend that summer visiting her family in Marseille. So, and this is a long time ago, 30 years ago now, 35 years ago. 
friend flew to Paris and got on the train to go to Marseille to spend the summer with her friend. She sat down on the only on one of the few empty seats in the in this particular train and sat down next to the person that she married and is still married to for the rest of her life. So when you think about what's the chances of plucking yourself out of a life to a whole other continent, I have a friend in Sonoma County who adopted a baby from China. Out of the whole billion people in China, this particular baby now lives as an eight-year-old in Santa Rosa going to school, taking ballet lessons, having a really quite privileged Western life. What's the chances of this baby? There are no chances. It's one in a billion. But one in a billion also happens. And sometimes, as you say, shit happens, but sometimes amazing things happen. I think the point is that everything happens. That's actually a wonderful place to start to think about the end of today, because I want to come back to what's really the lesson. The lesson is that everything happens. And here we are with the possibility of tilting the mind in the direction of remembering that everything happens. I think we mostly remember the bad stuff, or the stuff that we take is bad. Woe is me, because it frightens. It, 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 uh, it's frightening to people. Somebody said, you know, you turn on the news and it's all bad. Well, that's because the news that grabs is the news that ba that's bad. The networks do not decide to say. Uh, last year, the uh, I took this with me because mostly I like the, the picture on it. The American Jewish World Service, that is a philanthropic organization that does good work, probably like like Catholic charities or other. World Health Organizations, although they are uniquely not religious, they do good works. They like the Red Cross, but not, uh, but not the Red Cross. They do works on all the continents. They show up with all the disasters. They were there in Thailand when the tsunami hit. They did amazing work in. Um, they have done amazing projects in Africa, and they do not teach religion. They serve people in need all over the world be out of the mandate to uh, to serve that they take as the fundamental um, teaching of modern Judaism is repair the world. It's called tikkun. The word tikkun in Hebrew means uh, 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 amending. When you when you when you fix something that's broken you do a tikkun for it. You do something to make up for it. So uh, a tikkun of the world is what they are uh, committed to. And it's based on the notion that that, is very, that really nourishes the soul. It nourishes your own, uh, your own sense of goodness in the world. Uh, then um, some of the modern research on meditation has shown that if people are asked to remember something generous that they did, just before when they sit down to have a period of meditation and the instruction is, think of something generous that you did today. Ah. See, I can't even think of something generous I did today. Somebody left me a croissant here. I don't know who it is. It's a very generous thing. 
So wherever that person is, I feel very much picked up by their generosity. Uh, think of something that you did that was generous today or yesterday. You held a door for somebody. You let someone go ahead of you on the freeway or in the bank or in the supermarket or you talk nicely to somebody. It makes you feel better to think a generous thought, doesn't it? So the instruction is think of, generous, think of something that you did that was generous. Now meditate. One, two, three, start. And people's, people report that their meditation feels much smoother and more comfortable if they have picked up their own self-esteem before they started. It's as if you say, oh, you, you know, look, you're a really good person. Uh, there's something about, there's no, no uh, articles in the newspaper this morning that says today 100 aid organizations in Africa did this kind of good work and uh, 3,000 Boy Scouts in Missouri uh, went to visit old folks' homes, or all the good things that people are doing every day. Or I'm alive. Thich Nhat Hanh, it's good to end with him. He had this great teaching, I love it. Do you ever sit and you're kind of bored and you're sitting and you, you ever have periods of bored while you're sitting? Not, nothing hurts you, but you know, you're just sitting and it's pretty boring. Somebody asked him, what should I do? I'm just sitting with my breath, but it's boring. <laughs> he said, you could say to yourself, no toothache. <laughs> That's great, isn't it? Because right? then you can say to yourself, no cancer. Cancer-free. Uh, what else? You know, Food in the refrigerator. Children not sick. You know, there's a thousand things that we could probably say that would be things that lift up the mind every day. I don't know that we're, you know, that... Um, maybe it's good to, to, uh, to end with uh, Angie Arian saying that every day it's very good to make a list of what you're grateful for. I think that Angie joins a list of venerable spiritual teachers who say that, who have said in one way or another, the only prayer worth saying is uh, thank you. You know? But if you can get your mind to say thank you, and I've, I could have, if we had the time and we don't, I could tell you, well, I have a little bit of time. John Travis said that uh, he met a, a Rinpoche in Tibet that every, he went to meet because everybody said, this guy is really great. You really have to meet him. So that he went far and wide. Anyway, here he is, and someone introduces him, and the introducer says, Rinpoche, this is John, John Travis, and John puts out his hand, and the Rinpoche says, thank you, and it turns out that he's the thank you Rinpoche. He just says thank you. That's all he says. <laughs> and that's his practice. I mean, I'm sure he says other things sometimes, but that his greeting is thank you. Um, who else said that? Huh? No, I'm trying to think of somebody in another tradition. Um, no, we, I, uh, I know that uh, David Steindlerast has said so, but I can't remember the exact quote of it. 
but that the only thing to say, as long as we've got life, is thank you. You have a choice. You can either say thank you. Or I remember once when I was, I, every once in a while I get on a tremendous um, excited soapbox about really there's nothing to say but thank you. And my good friend and colleague Jack Cornfield said to me, what would you say? And he named some atrocity that had happened. And I said, I hope I would say no thank you. You know, that it's all right to say no thank you, but not to become adversarial, not to make your mind a battlefield. And the fourth noble truth, which we didn't, I had said I can do this, but I didn't. <laughs> fourth noble truth is the path, but you know, I have one thing to say, about, I have a lot of things to say about the path, but the thing I want to say about it now is I think it's a path from here to here, not from here to there, and we just keep trying to do it and just trying to make ourselves more present in this moment, that there isn't another time. The same people that I visited that had that cartoon of the Buddha on the refrigerator had a clock on the wall that where each of the numbers is, it says now. It says, that's what time it is, it's now. <laughs> it's now. So, but that's it. That it, the only time is now. In this moment, I can either be grateful or not. I can be angry or not. I can be angry and get such a kick out of being angry. You know, this, 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 it has a allure about it. Anger, I mean, it's righteous indignation. You can really get fired up. You feel like you're alive, or, or not. You say, I'm, I'm just not doing that. You know, it's not good for me. You live longer. I will, I, next week, I hope you will mention me in the prayers. I will be in, I'll be in Washington advocating for, um, I think that advocating is a very good word. It's the opposite of protesting against, advocating for peace. And uh, one of the hopes, if, this, this is a two-stage project, one of the hopes is that I'll go and learn how to lobby. These are professional lobbyists, so there's a way you, you learn. You get yourself informed, and then you go and you meet with Congress people. And the idea is that maybe next year we'd make a retreat to Washington, and maybe a dozen or 20 people would want to come, and we'd go, and we would be a lobbying retreat. We'd go to Washington together. How many people would go for a week? We'd, we'd get hotel rooms. We'd be together. We'd get up early in the morning and sit late in the evening, and we'd have people come and brief us on issues, and we'd sit an hour in the morning and an hour at night, and we'd lobby in between. Does that appeal to anybody? Yeah. All right, so stay tuned. Maybe next year we'll do it. I, I wasn't going to do it this year, but I decided I needed to do it myself first and find out if you, how it is, and then come. Would you do it? All right, stay tuned. Maybe next Fall, we'll do it. Who's teaching next week? So. Supposed to, you're on the list. On the calendar. You're on the list. I'm on a list. You're on the you're calendar. On I'm not supposed to be. I can't do it by long distance. All right. Okay. What do you want? Who? Tony? Yeah, I love Tony. Tony's great. Okay, Tony. I hope Tony. He might be out of town. Just give me a second. Heather, She's okay. Far away. She's far away. Linda. Linda. Linda Graham. Linda Graham. I haven't seen her in a long time. 
Elad, you got a choice for next week? Huh? I like Linda Graham a lot. Linda Graham. Okay. <laughs> All three busy people. Maybe I have to fly home in between and go back. Is Donald gone? I think Donald must be gone, and I think Donald is so scrupulous about keeping the calendar. How could that be that he knows I'm gone? Maybe he doesn't know I'm gone. Well, okay. It'll happen. It'll be mysterious. You know what? If nobody came, you could teach. Couldn't you? Wouldn't you do it? Let's make a pact. There will be somebody here. But promise me you'll all be here, okay? And then when, there will be somebody here. But whatever, if there isn't, everybody here who's been here more than once knows how the drill goes and could sit up here and could initiate a topic and could ring the bell and could lead a discussion. It might be... <laughs> it might be better <laughs> than one of us carrying on. May all beings everywhere be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. And may we, as we leave here, take whatever good feelings and inspiration we have with us so that it informs our life into our transactions in the whole world on behalf of a world of peace and goodwill. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.